Got this it. meeting is being recorded. Continue. Continue. Good stuff. Good stuff. All right, here we go. excited that next was the next week no it's not next week but in a few weeks you are going to be in wellington good yeah so, man how long has it been bro oh it actually has racked up it, it's been uh um, it like two years no it can't be dude it is no, you that feels like more like a month i would say and you notice yeah, because like you know the hair gets gray and yeah it's kids gray, get bro. massive and big and anyway Speaking of old men, yeah. No, no, no. Wait, whoa, whoa, don't say that like that. Whoa, whoa. Was, that's my... <laughs> I'm gonna. We uh, try to do the segue. So we're gonna hang. So this is very exciting for anyone that's into yeah, two sojourn and stuff because we'll try and do a live one. Oh yeah. Um, that'll be cool. You know, just try and do something. We'll set it up at a table and just kind of do a little messed up live one, which nothing ever works. Should I bring but my mic? Definitely bring your mic. Bring your whole thing. Yeah. So, anyways, that's uh, that's cool. Um, and there was something else I was going to say, but I totally forgot. All right. Well, we, uh, we were going to, so, you know, we didn't, we weren't on last week cause it's just been crazy. It's been crazy for me, by the way. Uh, pretty exciting. The dissertation is now in it's, uh, it's gone to internal review. It's done, done its first little thing. It's been, you know, it's, it's, it's full on clicked into the next level. So that's awesome, but it's been a busy, busy little, uh, uh spell to get it to this point. Um, so I missed last week. We didn't talk about chapter three. Um, and so what we're going to do this time is uh, partly because we want to kind of catch up partly because I totally made a mistake and sent Nick the, Nick the wrong chapter. So I've looked at chapter three for this uh, episode. He's looked at chapter four. So what we'll do is just try and combine both of those and get a little headway on, mm. on this, uh, the stuff that we're looking at. If you are tuning in, um you would well you might you might want to know you might be interested to know we're looking at a, a grouping of essays that have just been published around covenant theology uh from the reformed theological seminary team i'll put a link down on the show notes uh well if not in this one it's in the previous one or i won't i won't do that i won't do that i won't <laughs> until until someone shouts at me and then i then i do it um you know so someone link please and they'll go and throw them a link but uh covenant theology biblical theological historical perspectives google it uh guy prentice waters is i think the editor if i'm not mistaken or one of the guys and uh i'm uh, he wrote chapter three uh, the third essay, The Covenant of Works in the New Testament. You know Guy Princess Waters? Yep, he's the dude that did uh, the new uh, new perspective on Paul and the Federal Vision. Yeah, so I found him very helpful on many things. Yeah, yeah good dude. Um, yeah. And uh, you are looking at uh, the fourth essay. Uh, John D. Courage. Uh, so Adam and the beginning of the covenant of grace. So just looking at the fall and then looking at that initial promise being given. Cool. <clears throat> So covenant of works in the New Testament and, um, <clears throat> excuse me, oh, oh, bourbon went down the wrong pipe. All right. Um, uh, right. So let's get started with this. Um, I'll just, you know, what, what I did notice, I'm actually kind of glad we're doing two of these essays because a lot of this we've, we've actually covered already. Um, although we were talking about the old Testament last time, 
we can't help ourselves. We've got to go to the New Testament. So we've made reference to much of these um, arguments and, and everything here already. But I think it would just be helpful to say a little bit more about it and just to work through his argument here. Um, again, just wanting to eventually put this sort of thing on a playlist and uh, make it a bit more educational if someone wants to build up to the discussion. Um, and that'll allow them to do that. Um, but he says the phrase, the, the covenant of works is, you know, if you look at New Testament scholarship today, uh, you're not really going to find a whole, you know, it's, it's not a very in vogue thing to talk about, you know, <laughs> it's, it's really sort of a, it's a systematic theological imposition. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. You've got to, it presupposes that you're into covenant theology. It presupposes that you're probably reformed it, all of that sort of thing. So you're actually quite a small drop in the ocean when you talk about this in the world of New Testament scholarship. But, you know, everyone's got to make their own decision on this. And I think that doesn't, for me at least, doesn't lessen the um, the conviction that it's present. And as he says there, you know, it can be argued forcefully, uh, which we'll quickly look at uh, in, in this uh, episode. Uh, basically, one of the things that he does, I mentioned in a preceding episode that, that you have these moments where you have very Kleinian spin on things, and then you have moments where they the the um, guys in this book will deviate quite a bit from Klein. So when that happens, I'll just bring it up. And it's not necessarily that we want to stick to what he's saying. Yeah, it's more just using it as, as a kind of general outline for where we want to go anyway. And, uh, you know, one of the things we did mention last time was that um, what, what Klein, I think, rightly was was uh, was bothered by was this idea that, you know, there could be a super added covenant after the creation God, you know, being said to sort of create and get everything all off the ground. And, you know, some reformed theologians like Frame even talking about a covenant of creation apart mm. from the covenant of works. And then there's this other thing that happens somewhere, as uh, as uh, Guy Prentice Waters puts it, sometime after God created Adam, but before Adam first sinned against God. And so that means you got this weird little sort of at least, I don't know, logical space there where, where it would be possible for you know, got to pull back on on the idea of, of, of everything that we now know to be true uh, of what was promised to Adam. And uh, Klein was bothered by that. You know, he, he spoke about that as a, a kind of uh, something that really, uh, you know, imagined, you know, the very idea of a covenant is embedded in the image of God in, in the idea of being created there. And mm. uh, it's so woven into the creation event, uh, you know, for Adam to, at the dawning of his own consciousness, you know, would have been the dawning of the promise and uh, what was before him in the in this idea of of the 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 theophany, the 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 glory that awaited the the emulation of God. It's it's just impossible to rip that apart from from that event, and um and it's dangerous to do so. And the reason we do so uh, another another discussion here, but the reason we do so is probably because we're just leaning on, on a lot of the uh, medieval debates. Um, concerning soteriology that really aren't part of the reformed uh, scene proper. So um, you know he you know he said, listen, we've got to we've got to make sure that we're getting this right. So Princess Waters doesn't go there, or he doesn't he doesn't agree with that conviction, or at least he doesn't emphasize that conviction. He seems to be fine with saying, you know, somewhere between the first uh, you know creation event and somewhere before the sin, you have this super added covenant thing going on. Uh, so. That's fairly standard, though. Uh, it's only Klein that kind of really wants to get at that. Um, and he goes on to talk about the, which which really we all agree with, that, that you know, when you come to the New Testament, we've talked about all that in the Old Testament, but when you come to the New Testament, you really, your go-to passages are, are two primary texts. 
they are more, I think, but, but, and again, I'm thinking Klein and what he does there with the Lord's Supper and uh, what, what Jesus says, I'm covenanting you a kingdom and so forth. Uh, we've covered that stuff already. So let me just stick to these two uh, texts for now, which are super, super important. Everyone's, everyone agrees. Everyone's got to go there. And that's 1 Corinthians 15, 20 uh, to 23. Uh, then a little bit later in 44 to 49, then Romans 5, obviously, verse 12 yeah. to 21. Uh, and then he, uh, he does mention that also once you've, well, what plays into the discussion at some level is going to be Galatians, uh, where it talks about the Mosaic Covenant, um, and that will that will you know to the degree that you've bought into the, the the fact that that's a recapitulation or at least a republication of uh, the the covenant of works with Adam, then obviously that becomes important to see how how this works in the New Testament or what New Testament uh, texts are saying about it. Uh, same thing with Romans nine. Uh, verse 30 to 10, 21. Uh, so we'll get to that in a second. There. Yeah, yeah. So uh, just maybe something that's uh, just it's fresh in my mind. I've heard mm -hmm. it recently. I was, I was hearing Greg Beale being interviewed recently about his latest book on New Testament theology. Mm -hmm. And I uh, just love the succinct way he put it. And I think it was, could feed into the discussion really well is he yep. talks about, you know, the theology of God's sons. Yeah. You know, you've got yeah. Adam as a son under probation with you know if he sins there's an exile there's a temptation yeah, yeah israel god's son there's in a garden uh, given a duty exile out the garden yeah brilliant. and then luke at the end of luke's genealogy jesus is called the son of god and then there's the wilderness temptation and so yeah. you know, that's definitely a covenant of works yeah. reflecting on god's sons mm, absolutely and, uh, so yeah just a just a great way to see a continuity yeah. yeah, in the storyline of the Bible. Oh, absolutely. At that macro level, at the new creation, especially what Bill does a lot, um, you know, Allison and Davis as well, they, they, you know, you've got this new creation event going on, you know, and it, it, to the degree that you weave the covenant in with creation, and you see the new creation event going on with, um, with, with, with Jesus, uh, you know, there are all sorts of things that come to play there as well. And, and you know, maybe I suppose the, the one thing to say, about this though is that um you know and also the high priestly prayer of christ you know um you know configuration as we as we sort of go step by step uh, almost like a um what is the word i'm looking for like a cascading argument almost you know the yeah. what, if you land the covenant of redemption idea then you could work it backwards as we said a while ago but um you know i, I suppose what we're thinking here is the person that's going covenant of what now in the New Testament, what you know, you just want to send them to something that, at that intro. There it is. What else do you do with it? You know, it's it's yeah. kind of it's that it's that explicit. It's that basic to the argument. The proof text stuff. Yeah, it is a proof text in the good sense, I think, um, because as he says, both of these passages, thinking about uh, one Corinthians fifteen and Romans five, now uh, both of them offer a sustained comparison of the persons and actions of Adam and Christ. That's I mean, that's obviously what he's doing. Uh, plus, you know, what he's doing there is is speaking about those comparisons in distinctly covenantal terms. So uh, certainly when when Paul speaks of Jesus's death for our justification um, in, in uh, you know, he's talking in expressly covenantal terms as uh, as what is points out there. Um, and so you have to look at it that way. You can't, it's not just a reformed theologian that has to do that. Uh, you know, it, it's, you've got two atoms 
as a framework in the Bible, and it must be understood as representative, which is federal, which is covenantal. You can't get away from it. Uh, You can use different words. You can cloud it up, but you really have to deal with the issue. This is in 1 Corinthians 15, 20. Paul declares, as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. Mm Mm-hmm. Adam and Christ are representative persons, that is, each represents a wide swath of human beings, the all, right? Again, like, like you, you can, that's the first time you read the Bible, you get that, you know, this is, these are the representative yeah. figures. Um, now, there are all sorts of in and outs as to how they represent and what could, they, what could we say about that representation, but that they are representative figures is just undeniable uh, at Amen. some level. I mean, it, you'd have to just not care about what Paul's saying. Um, what, what, one thing he goes into, which I thought is good and, and plays a lot on Gaffin's argument. If you've read on, you know, he, Gaffin's obviously done a lot of work mm. on the life-giving spirit thing. In, in, Amen. In, in, That's a great, which great I point. thought was very helpful. Yeah. But, you know, he says what, what Paul's doing is he's got, he's got in mind those, those events in, of the old Testament, um, festivals that are correspondent to, you know, the complex of events in redemption. So you've got like, uh, you know what is it the the passover that is the the crucifixion Booths, tabernacles yeah, and yeah. Then the, the the feast of weeks and the feast of harvest the feast of weeks becomes the you know resurrection the feast of harvest becomes the 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 pentecost, pentecost. and th- so you know they're all aligned they're all very very purposeful they're jubilee all, exactly you know the whole idea is to you know really show us exactly you know what has been made legible in the old testament now comes to bear um in its fulfillment um, and so that's what he's doing. I mean, Paul is, is you go through, uh, second, uh, first Corinthians there, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He's not just thinking about anything there. He's thinking of something very specific. Um, as Herman Ritterboss put it, uh, year, the picture of the harvest is in the background and the context for this image. Uh, this is what is the context for the image is the, uh, considerable number of laws in the old Testament governing the ingathering of the first fruits of the harvest and the idea um in in first corinthians really plays on on all of that and richard gaffin says uh, in the first fruits the whole harvest becomes visible for the first time which is great uh, in, in, uh, in christ the resurrection of the dead dawns uh, his resurrection represents the commencement of the new world of god beautiful love that well so let me ask you something um with gaffin were you all the way with him there on you know so basically what he, as, as i as i remember and this is kind of me just brushing a, l- a little dust off as we speak, but um, uh, he basically equated the work of the, sp- so when Paul says, for example, um, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit, mm, that's it right. capitalized S there, the Holy Spirit yes. um, in the work of the resurrection, because yep. there the two are functionally identical really in the, in the work itself without yes. denying that the, the, the person hood of each of the two within the Godhead. Um, and so he rationalized it that way. Were you with him all the way on that? Totally. And yeah, I think yeah. uh, with John 20, where Christ says, receive the Holy Spirit, yes, you have a, a concrete enacting of those theological realities. Yeah. 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 Wow. So the life-giving spirit, I suppose yeah. I was content. Uh, the part I, I struggled with a little bit there. Well, you know, I suppose, you know, I didn't really have a kickback on it as much as just thinking, well, do you need to go all the way there? You know, it's almost like as I, I was content to think of, 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 um, you know, Adam is the, is the one who was created upright, um, but did not 
give life, you know, um, as one in the flesh. And then you had uh, Jesus, who's not necessarily being equated with the Holy Spirit, but as the spiritual man, the pneumaticus, you know. Um, yeah, Let me it. put it in reformed theological terms, and, and this is what's really helped me. So just reflecting on the Lord's Supper, the, the act of the Holy Spirit, the resurrection of Christ. Mm-hmm. So what is the role of the Spirit of Christ? So there's that, there's that denomination, the Spirit of Christ. He has this name. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He takes that which is Christ's, and he makes it ours. So mm-hmm. the picture Christ in his resurrected glory, and I think I've used this illustration with you before, picture him as a dialysis machine. Picture him as a, yeah. a yeah. wall socket, and the Holy Spirit takes you and plugs you into him. Yeah. So that every benefit that you receive of the eschatological age is the benefit that is first being given to Christ and the spirit takes that which is Christ and makes it ours. So, yep. so, so you experience nothing of the new age apart from being a part of his body. And so in that sense, yeah. Uh, yeah. Christ yeah. in his newness yeah. and, and, and that federal ability to pass on blessing and the spirit who has renovated Christ's own humanity, it's, it's, mm. it's in coming into contact with him and being united with him that we yeah. receive. And, and I wouldn't want to deny none of that, you know, at, in yeah. terms of the dynamics anyway, it's more just a matter of, of going, okay, so in what sense does, does Christ as the one who now is, is, is uh, the, the spiritual man, in, not in, not in a non-physical sense, but in a new creation sense, uh, it, how is that life being given? Well, of course, the Holy Spirit is involved in every way. So it, it's very easy. It's a, a little microscope for me to go, okay, the Holy Spirit should be, it should be capitalized as the S there. But um, yeah, I, I could do it both ways is my bottom line. I could rationalize okay. it quite easily both ways. I liked what he said. Uh, yeah. yeah well, on that point, awesome. you'll like this thing. Gaffin explains the significance of what transpired at the resurrection. At his resurrection, the personal mode of Jesus' existence as the last Adam was decisively transformed by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit who raised him up as the first fruits indwells him so completely and in such a fashion that in their functioning, he is the spirit who will be instrumental in the resurrection of the full harvest. Only by virtue of the functional identity of the spirit and Christ, effected redemptive historically in his resurrection, is the is the is Christ the communicator of life? I mean, amen. amen. That, that was <laughs> what a great paragraph. What a Ooh, great paragraph. Even it's if, dense theology and it's glorious theology. It's right? great. Yeah, and like I'm yeah. lifted into the heavens. Yeah, loved it. <laughs> Literally. Um, so there we go. That's um, that's dealing with a little bit of what's going on there in in First Corinthians. Um, but you know, effectively, what we're saying is that the resurrection of Jesus has inaugurated the age to come, and uh, this is the order that's really standing in antithesis to the old order under Adam, uh, under the first Adam, and um, and what what is going to and this is the part I'm sort of wanting to major on either way. What's going to characterize the age to come is the is the spiritual, not not physical, but spiritual as in new creation reality, the, the activity of the spirit Amen. in bringing that across. So that's what's you know. Again, I think it would be rare that a New Testament theologian could evade this paragraph to such an extent that he could, you know, just not deal with its federal implications at all. You know, now I, I typically they don't, they just don't, they don't go there, but they should, because that's very, very forceful. You know, you've got these two representatives, two orders, two creations. It's just, there it is. Um, so uh, moving on to Romans five. Okay. Um, this is perhaps even more explicit because, uh, he's not, he's, he's revisiting the two Adams thing, but, but Paul's not saying the same thing again. 
Uh, rather, he's reflecting on where, where in Corinthians he's reflecting on Adam almost before his his fall into sin as the representative. Yeah, in Romans you've got um, you've it's got, more forensic and it's yeah you've got it's more around justification. Deal. It's all whereas, about uh, one Corinthians fifteen is more about glorification. This is more about justification. Yeah, and, and you know Adam has fallen into sin here, and now what do we yeah. do about it? And 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 there is that idea, um, really that takes a key focus. So, um, you know, I think, I think everyone sort of had just having listened to any number of, of episodes before this would be a little bit more familiar with, with Romans five. We, we refer to it all the time. Um, it is like the go-to text in, in the new Testament, but there it's just, uh, again, very, very clear that you have these two federal groupings and, you know, it's almost to the extent that, you know, I, I think of the, the total depravity kind of, uh, imputation, uh, argument where, you know, it, I remember the cage stage uh, Calvinism thing where, you know, if someone wasn't happy with total depravity, your comeback would be, well, are you happy then with, you know, Christ giving you his righteousness? <laughs> because um, as for the one, so for the other. Yeah, exactly. You Standing know, and falling together. Yeah. Even without any sense of trying to install any covenant theology, it's just such a base argument there that that you can appeal to. Um, that I think it is, you know, and what you're doing there when you appeal to those kinds of arguments is that you're saying, listen, what is exactly how you just put it? What you say for the one, you must say for the other. That's what Paul's doing. That's what he's setting up there. Um, but we, I think, in the last episode, did actually cover exactly the kind of stuff that matters here, as it uh, certainly as it falls into the uh, the. The importance of the Mosaic Covenant, where um, from Adam to Moses, all men sinned, um, but then you have this uh, this kind of transgression happening from the time of Moses onwards, and uh, this is showing uh, how how now it's not just Israel that is in trouble because they were under the law. Really, what the whole purpose of Israel was was to serve as a kind of microcosm of the macrocastic issue which is <laughs> what is wrong with adam and so it started you know yeah. at that romans level it's starting to glue what happens later on i think in 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 galatians um three uh together to to form one big coherent idea there that in the new testament that to the degree that you read about israel and you see all those federal representatives all over the place you know for typologically you know whether even starting before israel we've got adam i mean um uh, noah. noah and you've abraham. got abraham and you've got all those guys <laughs> and then you get to moses and then you get the davidic king and the the obedience of the king brings blessing for the people and even the high priest yeah the whole mediatorial role yeah yeah i mean so if, if the old testament is creating a legibility for our understanding of the work of christ i mean my goodness it's woven into the fabric of everything that's going on there um which is what paul's drawing from continually he's saying look look how you know this two atom structure um uh, is set up by uh you know as we just take what's what christ has done now in comparison to adam as the as the um fulfillment the the last atom but then that then you know it allows you to see how the whole what is the whole purpose of israel it's just to show us all of that it's just to teach us about how that works essentially Amen. it's just to can i can i butt in there and do a little segue and riff on that concept of yeah, uh, uh, federal heads and typology so mm -hmm. i think i may have mentioned to you uh, doug wilson's view of being a federal husband Ooh. have i mentioned that to you um <laughs> I might have perceptually blocked it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, here's, here's, here's the theology and here's what we've just said, culminating and the types being fulfilled in Christ, just uh, destroy his arguments. But he says yeah. something like this, you know, you've got a father and you've got his family and there's a covenant principle. 
Um, so in the Old Testament, you know, you have the, the, the head of the household and his family incorporated into the covenant community. Yeah. And uh, that's because of the federal principle and he's a covenant head. And so in the New Testament, every Christian father is a federal husband. He's a covenant head. So if the father, for example, starts becoming a drunk or he starts sinning by gambling or he, what he does, he opens a spiritual door and now suddenly mm. his kids start misbehaving wow. because just as David sinned and brought cursing on the nation of Israel, so a father can now sin as also as a yeah. type of federal head. And yeah. now your kids will start misbehaving if you are not holy enough. Interesting. And what we would say is this, is like in the Old Testament, that principle was true because yeah. it was the age of types. Right. You know, it was deliberately set up so that Adam would represent what Adam, what, uh, sorry, David uh, was set up to represent what Adam should have accomplished and what Christ will accomplish. Yes. And yes. he did bring cursing upon the nation. Now that Christ, who is our mediator, has fulfilled the covenant of works in our behalf, he has obeyed in order to bring blessing upon our heads. We can no, have a, can no longer have that typological relationship with the federal head. Yep. It's and that's also why we're Baptist, by the way. Amen. So, I mean, uh, Doug Wilson's Peter baptism and his federal husband thing, you know, yep. and I, just, you know, for our Peter Baptist brethren, I'm sure they would want to yeah. disassociate with Doug Wilson. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we're not, we're not so, arguing against Peter Baptism no. on the basis of its worst proponents. It's just, it's just that fundamentalist Baptist streak <laughs> that comes out in us every now and again. We, Amen. We just, you just got yeah. to have a dig. Gotta but, have uh, yeah. I mean, Christ has fulfilled yeah. the covenant of works, and he has yeah. brought blessing upon us. There is no curse of the law upon us anymore. And so any weird relationship where we need any more mediators, and that's the irony of Doug Wilson. He's not taking us back to the mediators of the, of the Roman Catholic Church where we need Mary and angels. He's taking yeah. us back to the mediators of the Old Covenant, yeah. which were all typological in kind. Interesting. Yeah, that's a good yeah. insight. Wow. So, <clears throat> the, um, I mean, I think, well, I was going to say, you know, you have all these um, uh, examples that they go to, which, yeah, I mean, I think it, it almost reminds me a little of like what we do with the prosperity gospel, you know, uh, when they talk about, um, hey, look how this, look, you know, if we just obey, then, you know, then we're going to get these blessings and look, it's all over the place. You know, you could, you can, you know, prosperity gospels use the Bible, they, uh, gospel preachers at least use the Bible. They, they, they know their, they, they go to their texts. They don't not read from the Bible. You know, they're, they're, they're out there preaching Old Fresh Testament theologians. Yeah. In some <laughs> senses, but there is a weird, we've spoken about this before, but there is a weird circle back on like uh remember back in the charismatic days i remember that there was this huge openness to theonomists which is so strange but it actually isn't because everyone was all about the kingdom now and your kingdom business and taking the kingdom and, and that's exactly what the and if would my make. people then i will you know let's let's oh, man, national repentance let's have national days of prayer absolutely and and so you know and and then you know it's just fitting right there into we shouldn't be downcast and downtrodden we should be wealthy we should be rich we should be prospering it really just another way to frame post-millennialism in some ways you know just yeah. this is what we this is what we should be shooting for but anyways what i was going to say there is just again they're they're grasping on these these principles that are there in the old covenant but it's just they're missing the whole framework you know or or seeing uh, missing the discontinuity that we would argue for um, on these on these issues, but you know, on, on the thing that you were talking about there, I love the, I love the. Um, this comes from a kind of Baptist argument thing, but but I I love the way it applies to all of this, where Christ is the patriarch, you know, he is the Amen. patriarch with the offspring, he is the head. So anything you see about a patriarchal head, you know, he is the he is the patriarch. We are his Amen. offspring, as it were. You know, he is the everlasting father. That's one of his names. Exactly. 
which is just um yeah, yeah that's a great point because you know you got to think about how you would interpret that if you're not going to take it's not ontological exactly yeah. yeah it's covenantal so i mean there we go there's all that sort of thing uh to think about now just quickly just leave some space for for your chapter as well um the only thing i disagree with him on just for anyone who does go and look at the book um and and read the essay is that he does not agree that the the covenant of works is a um Oh, the Mosaic Covenant is a typological republication of the Covenant of Works. He takes the the misinterpretation view, which has, which is sort of seems to be coming back in vogue a little bit with client with with sort of Kleinianish. Uh, I don't know if I'm reading that into it, but but it just seems like oh man, what a that 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 was a downer for me. Um, and he argues his case. He says, well, you know, this is why. But I think one of the things he just legitimately does not touch. I don't know if he understands this. I'm sure he does, but but he just does not um he sort of wants to separate the law from the mosaic covenant and go as far as the law is happening there in within the mosaic covenant sure talk about that as law but the mosaic covenant is grace well we'd say something similar in that the mosaic economy is grace but the mosaic covenant is not a principle of grace it's a it's a covenant of works uh at yeah. least at that typological level so it's a slight nuance there and i think it takes you to a different place but i i think it does make better sense of what Paul's doing, he does argue, you know, his version of what what Paul's going uh, for there in Galatians. I know that one of his issues, uh, and this is interesting, and I've I've wrestled with it before, but he doesn't want to. Almost reminds me a little bit of uh, what Piper said, um, where he, he he doesn't want to affirm the Galatian heresy in any way, you know. So he doesn't want to say the Galatians really got it right, you know, they understood it properly, <laughs> and what great theologians they were, you know, they they actually got the old covenant as as they should have but that's not what we're saying either um we're saying sure at, at the level of of their um their insistence upon works for blessing and so forth yeah there's an overlap in terms of what what the typological purpose of um the mosaic covenant was for but really the fundamental issue at play there was that they were saying look you want to be let's 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 have the new covenant be like the old covenant and they were misunderstanding the old covenant itself on this particular point that added to the substitutionary atonement the undergirding covenant of grace you yeah. you actually need to obey not as a super not as a subservient i should say covenant of works to show us our need for grace but as a, a way to perfect grace and a way to uh get get the blessings of grace and so that's and what paul is doing i think that's that's what makes such perfect sense because paul then goes all right you want to be truly jewish about this whole thing let me take you back to abraham let me show you that you know that law was uh, at least that covenant or the law that came 430 years after that covenant uh it wasn't given so as to kind of complete or annul the previous covenant it was there to show you how much you needed that covenant that's always been the reason for it that's why you had that ty typological element in play and i think paul does clearly have the whole covenant in view there not just the law um so it's a big discussion as uh, i'm sure people know as they're listening on this but but uh, you know, just to keep that in mind, if you did want to go and get a, a, a different perspective on it, then go through and read that that essay. Um, but you know, coming back to the theological implications, largely in agreement when when he sort of brings it all together, he says um, just to read it, uh, his little summary. Yeah, we've seen that the apostle Paul understood Adam before his fall to have been in a special covenant with God. Adam stands parallel with the last Adam, Jesus Christ. As Christ's work to redeem his people is covenantal in character, we must understand Adam's obedience and its consequence in equally covenantal terms. Um, we 
Yeah. Well, let me just skip over this part that I disagree with him on and, and really just say, here's the devotional aspect. You know, we, we know that as we think about this, you know, it's, it's, it's like we were saying earlier, sure, we're condemned in Adam, but to the same degree, if we're thinking in these covenantal terms, here's where our assurance lies, essentially. Um, it's, it's the covenantal free gift of God. The covenant head is the one who needed to be perfect so that you can receive the benefits. And, um, and so our justified state doesn't change because of who Christ is. I mean, this is all of the assurance that we have as a Christian. You start getting, you know, you start corroding at this idea and you eventually will take that assurance away as you see other systems do. So uh, I think those who hold up this idea of a covenant of works and the two Adam construct alone can really think about assurance in, in, in just unqualified terms. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Beyond probation. Beyond probation. True that. Okay, that's me. <laughs> this is my baton. On to you. All right. So how much time do we have left? About an hour, <laughs> two hours, whatever. Awesome. No, so uh, the chapter that I was reading is uh, Adam and the Beginning of the Covenant of Grace by mm -hmm. John D. Currid. I believe he's done some commentaries on, on the Old Testament. I think I have some of them from Evangelical ah, Grace. Yes, true. That's true. Yeah. 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 Currid. Ah, that's where yeah. I was, it was annoying me. Where, yeah, yeah it rings right. a bell, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah, so I mean, he just jumped straight in. And what we're, what we're doing here is uh, we're sort of shifting gear. We're moving away from the covenant of works. And we're now sort of going right to the, the earliest moment of the covenant of grace. And in mm -hmm. and of itself, that is even a controversial question between people like oh, yeah. 1689 Federalists, those who deny a covenant structure, um, and the traditional view which we're embracing at this point. He doesn't go into any of that discussion. So it doesn't come up during this essay. All he does is he assumes the correct position. Yeah. <laughs> the position that we hold to that uh, directly after the fall. And so he begins with uh, mankind's rebellion and disobedient to, uh, to the covenant of works. Mm -hmm. And uh, he begins just looking at the consequences. So the, the effects of sin. And um, he gives a little quote from the Westminster. Uh, so he says, uh, sin affected and infected all human nature the westminster says by this sin they fell from their original righteousness and communion with god and so became dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body and so just basically developing that idea he he outlines various ways in which man is now alienated where there's been a huge breakdown hmm. so there's alienation from god um where adam uh, and Eve are hiding from the Lord. Mm -hmm. uh, they're alienated from one another. They're mm -hmm. estranged from one another. They're covering one another up. They're, they're fearful of one another, covering their shame. Mm -hmm. uh, they're alienated from their original perfect physical environment. So there's the, the curse upon the earth. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's at this point that he does raise a Klein question. Mm -hmm. uh, would you like me to read that for you? Oh, please do. Yeah. So, so you'll, you'll know that Klein um, was there death before the fall. Um, so there's mm. a question along these lines. Mm -hmm. um, he says, to be fair, not all biblical commentators agree with this assessment. For example, Arthur Lewis concludes, nothing in the narrative suggests that the realm of nature has been altered in a fundamental way. Mm -hmm. Meredith Klein concurs, and he quotes, the Bible does not require us, therefore, to think of the character and working of man's natural environment before the fall as radically different from what is presently the case. Mm. So, you know, the, the question comes up, was there death before the fall? Mm, mm. And my personal view is that there was no death in the image of God before the fall. 
Um, death in and of itself is not immoral. Otherwise, God could not have said to Peter, kill and eat. Mm-hmm. Um, so death, death in the animal world is not uh, immoral. The wages of sin is death in the image of God. That's mm. a, a forensic and a judicial sentence. Mm. Um, so maybe that would upset our creationist brothers and sisters. But I guess just to, to add a few more thoughts there. I believe that God made a world that he knew that he had designed to fall. Mm-hmm. And I think that even in aspects of nature, death has been woven in as a redemptive analogy. Yep. So unless Amen. he dies, he cannot bring forth life. I think the yeah. whole of creation is wired towards the gospel. Yeah. So Amen. that when Christ, so Christ fulfills everything, you yeah. know, yeah. I'm finding yeah. types where the Bible doesn't say there are types, but right. you know, right. all of history is, is, is heading towards its, its, its central event of, yeah. of redemption through the death of Christ. Yeah. So, um, you know, we don't have the eschatological new creation on earth before Adam's fall. Mm. Um, so, you know, yeah, it reminds I'm me a little bit of like, see, yeah, sorry, I was just going to say like, you know, you've got, you've got even marriage, you know, you think about marriage before the fall, you know, talking about it's, it's how not, it's, it's not all the eschaton. Just, no, yeah. but I mean, it's this all wide setting it up, everything's setting it up for what would ultimately be true of Christ and the church. Yeah. You know, uh, even, you know, just at risk of almost bringing grace before the fall, you know, in a very <laughs> blasphemous Kleinian way uh, or anti-Kleinian well, way. Well, protology is eschatology. A- amen. And, and well, let's just keep it eschatology completely. Eschatology precedes soteriology. Let's keep it uh, completely at that protological, eschatological level where, where you have, um, you know, marriage now being the first time you have a coming together, the creation by division, creation by division, creation by division. And then you've got the creation, by, uh, this union event between a man and his wife, the first time a consummation occurs, you know, and it's just now, it's almost like there is a glimpse right there of the thing that has yet to take place to, to bring heaven and earth together. It's just, um, I think, um, if I'm not mistaken, Van Pelt brings that point out in um, one of the uh, Song of Solomon, uh, I can't remember exactly the work now, but one of the recent works that he put out there. And um, and it, I think, if I'm not mistaken, I, I looked at this a while ago, so I'm not quite clear on, but I remember Van Pelt was the guy. It might even be in the essay that he writes next um, on, on Noah that this comes up. But anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll find it one way or another. But it's just a, there's a, another example of how, you know, uh, whether you got animal death or you got marriage, you got whatever, everything's just been given to us to give us kind of ways of understanding things that are ultimately true in um, in the salvation that we have. You know, even just for Adam, you know, what, prior to the fall, what does it mean that you will die? Yeah. You know? How did he have any concept of what death was unless he... Yeah, Unless he's seeing sort of... something that's really, you know, it's yeah. not great. You know, it's not like, you know, it might not have been immoral, but it's like, dude, to see a, an animal dying, yeah. you know, it'll make, it'll make a city slicker like myself feel a little bit. Yeah, different. I mean, I remember going to one of these creationist seminars and there's some wonderful stuff there. I love the creationist guys. I love the way they fixate on God's creation and want to make it big and, you know, amen. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I went to, I went up to him afterwards and I you know I said well what about what about snake venom like you know you've got this latched this fang that works on a latch there's all the muscles mm. all the nerve that attach to the brain mm. there's all these instincts to bring it out it fights you know it bites and there's this hollow fang and it's attached to a venom sac and that venom has a certain effect it's paralysis or a blood thinner or whatever the case is yeah and his answer was ah, it's to digest fruit. <laughs> um, 
And so, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, just what, but, but I think what the irony for me is that, you know, using creationist arguments against creationists to allow for a world that's going to fall without opening a door for theistic evolution. Yeah. It's almost like they think this is the thin end of the wedge, but it's not necessarily well, the and case. The thing that, you know, I realize is, you know, being charitable here to, to a variety of views, but the thing that honestly just gets, gets me kind of a little bit upset about this whole thing is that you, you, as, as important as that might be, it becomes, it totally eclipses anything that is ultimately important in the gospel and people get stuck on snake fangs, you know, yeah. and they literally don't come to Christ <laughs> because of snake fangs, you know, or dinosaur fossils yeah. or whatever it is that you want to throw in there. Uh, and a lot of numbnut stuff has come out of the creation science deal. So, you know, there's a lot to get tripped up on them. And it's just that, fine, have that debate some other time or have it in its context. Or Now, I do, again, I'm with you. I appreciate anyone who's fighting for the Bible or the veracity of the scriptures. And, you know, we're just wanting to have another perspective there. But, but you know, I just, when it gets to the point that it's actually eclipsing the whole point of everything, you know, that's the preacher in me. I and basically, you, you sometimes you can leave those seminars thinking, unless I'm reading the Bible exactly as they are, yeah. I'm not even orthodox. I'm not even orthodox. I'm not even Christian. And you know, so many people that have come to our church end up being creationist, interestingly enough, right? This, they end up going there anyway, not by me. I'm not pushing them there. They end up there, but they came into the church broken for this issue. They did, they were not, um, they, they felt that they could not be Christians because they couldn't get over this hurdle, you know? And then interestingly, once they, the hurdle is taken away, they come to Christ they end up, you know, totally getting, you know, whatever, and there they are, Christians, and then they're like, oh, actually, it's not such a hurdle anymore, and, uh, you know, <laughs> I totally believe Genesis is fine, that's good with me, and it's it's not even a problem, but it's it's like, that's a classic example of what I'm seeing again and again and again, just this kind of, um, you know, this Ken Ham kind of issue going on, you know, where, where unless you're with him all the way, it's like, it's there's this this real... Yeah, uh, down I mean, it does does raise question marks over you know creation evangelism or abortion evangelism. You know, oh man, yeah, these things can be yeah. Yeah, yeah these you know can just detract from the scriptures. Yeah, amen. Totally. Um, yeah, so I mean, uh, John Carrot himself disagrees with too much continuity in terms of you know allowing yeah. for death before the fall or whatever the case is. Right. Um, and I think you know, and I, and I think I would agree with you know a measure of emphasizing that you know. Romans 8 does clearly say the creation was subjected to futility, but in yeah. hope. Yeah. So there is something that happens, you know, right. and even the okay. curses themselves mark a change mm. in, you know, thorns and thistles and childbearing and sweat of the brow and the way the earth is affected. There's mm. no doubt there is an impact. Yeah. But I still don't think it takes away from the possibility that God made a world with death in mind, mm. at least mm. in the animal world before the fall. Yeah. Yeah. Michelle. Like yep. That. And so then, these guys uh, are playing it safe. All these essays, I've noticed that they try and cover all the angles, and they try and just, you know, yeah. I don't know if I'm. We'll see. I mean, if that what's nice is they're marking, they're marking the main highway. Yeah. And they're steering away from the marginal stuff. That takes you away. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So, which is good. Yeah. Which is good. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Um, and then uh, the last, the the last sort of effect of the fall, the last way in which we're alienated is we're alienated from the eternal life of God, and this is shown specifically in being kicked out of the garden. And the angel with the burning sword being put there mm -hmm. um, as the sign of that alienation. Um, you know, and I think that's wonderful to consider when you think of Joshua standing with the sword. Uh, and you better go back into the garden of, 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 of the promised land. You know, yeah. these wonderful oh, resonances going on. Yeah. <laughs> Love that. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, so, 
yeah so 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 those are the effects of the fall and that brings him to the actual commencement of the covenant of grace itself and uh you know he directs our attention to genesis 3 mm-hmm. uh where you know god has come he's confronting adam and eve and um god takes the initiative and uh in genesis 3 verse 14 to 19 um although there's all this talk of sin there's the good news woven into it um, god makes a covenantal oath binding himself to mankind and to his creation he says and then he quotes the westminster confession man by his fall having made himself incapable of life by that covenant the covenant of works the lord was pleased to make a second commonly called the covenant of grace yeah and uh, at this point we're defining grace in the demerited sense aren't we? yeah amen, amen. <laughs> so so man has sinned <laughs> he has demerited any right to life yeah, and now yeah. god takes the initiative God shows not just a condescension, but a love towards his enemies and a true grace. Yeah. And uh, he, he makes a promise of salvation to his enemies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amen. And uh, it's, it's important to note that it's in God's pronouncement on the serpent in verses 14 and 15 that the context of the promises is, is, is really stated. Yeah. And um, amen. Yeah. So you know, the gospels preached to the devil. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? You know, the the whole it just. I mean, wow. It's just yeah. The gospel comes in, you know, into play in the context of a curse, and it, yeah. you know, it is fulfilled in the context of a curse, and it's judgment, just, salvation, the flood. You know? Yeah, it's just redemptive salvation judgment again. Plan's theme there is just so important. You know, you can't understand redemption without redemption redemptive judgment, and um, the two are, are woven. And together. I think James Hamilton in his book. Uh, salvation through judgment he's, he's mm, done a whole mm, you know basically mm. just mapping out what klein has said yes you know, he takes the client he just works it all the way through shows you at every 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 totally. every level yeah um salvation through judgment mm. and uh, amen amen and amen mm. that's exactly what the cross is redemption through propitiation totally totally for sure so um yeah so maybe just coming focusing then uh, in on the promise itself in genesis three fifteen, mm-hmm. otherwise known as the protevangelium First thing to note, he tells us, is that God is the subject of the verse as the speaker, and he sets up a new order and direction for history. And I just, I recall what Lloyd-Jones says at this point. He says, unless you start with Genesis 3.15, you're not going to understand history. We're given here a philosophy of history from a Christian perspective. Mm. The whole of history is about a war between two sides. Yeah, that's that's what the whole thing is about. And mm. so, you know, you can see America and you can see China, but what it's all about is the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Yeah. And this is this is the lens through which we can understand all of human history. All the genealogies of Genesis, all the genealogies of the Bible, all suddenly become awesome, you know. <laughs> Whereas before it's just kind of like, why? Why another one? Well, this is why you're tracking with this like epic, you know, and you just what what happens now? Where does it go? And the Bible stays yeah. on point with all of that. So uh, I remember reading, uh, having to preach through Genesis, you know, and you sort of, uh, you know, you can track with Klein a little bit, but then he sort of bails, you know, Klein doesn't do the whole of Genesis and he just kind of leaves you hanging, but he gives you the tools to, to kind of work through from that point and see, oh, well, you know exactly what to look for in the seed of the serpent, seed of the woman, of course, there it is. And, um, and man, it's amazing. It just becomes almost the most exciting parts of the, of the story, not only in Genesis, but every time you see a gene- genealogy, you know, it's almost like, okay. You know, the spirit himself is now leading the biblical author to say, all right, 
watch this. We're moving in this direction, you know. And uh, as soon as you tune in on that, it becomes just amazing. You, you become a genealogy. Watch God nerd. be faithful to His promise. Watch God be faithful to His promise. And the whole I mean, time it's you got Genesis three fifteen going on in your in your head, and you're just thinking like, what? This is this is still the same yeah. story. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. So uh, what he does, he then uh, sort of develops, shows the three levels or tiers of conflict in the promise, okay. which really bring us out to Christ. So it begins, uh, the first stage of enmity will be between you and the woman, mm-hmm. you know? And um, so that the pronoun you is in the second person, masculine singular, and it's referring to the serpent to whom God is directly speaking. Mm-hmm. And the woman, of course, refers to Eve. So there's, it's, it's important that we know who the subjects are because as we move through the three levels, the subjects change, mm-hmm. um, pointing ultimately to Christ. Uh, the second stage is uh, between your offspring and her offspring. And that's where we see uh, starting with Cain and Abel, mm-hmm. believer versus the unbeliever and culminating in the book of Revelation where you know Satan's trying to get all the nations together to crush the church. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's the culmination of the grand war and Christ comes in and saves us from the jaws of death mm-hmm. and we live happily ever after. But um, everything we, every, the whole storyline of the Bible, you know, in terms of Israel and, and being persecuted by all the nations, it's all interpreted through this. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, the third divinely ordained stage of clash and conflict is the battle between two individuals. And so there's the change in the pronouns from, mm-hmm. you know, group pronouns to singular pronouns he will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel and here we're speaking not about eve a woman but now these two masculine pronouns referring Mm. to to satan and christ Mm. and um it's getting very specific Mm. and um yeah two singular pronouns emphasizing uh the, the climactic battle between satan and christ um, and so this is, this is the comment that he makes, drawing it to a close. He says, God takes a prophetic oath. And so this is the covenantal aspect, prophetic yeah. oath that he will send a champion to crush the enemy of his people. Who is this coming hero? Who is the he of Genesis 3.15? One major clue is found in the New Testament, where Jesus is portrayed as in the direct lineage of Adam and Eve in Luke 3. Christ is thus being portrayed as a direct male descendant of the woman. It is further significant that immediately after the genealogy, Jesus is led by the spirit into the wilderness of battle to Mm -hmm. battle Satan. Mm -hmm. The champion sallies forth to engage the enemy, as it were, head on. Thus begins a raging war that that reaches its climax at the cross where the Messiah lands a mortal blow to the head of the serpent. Mm. Amen. So there it is. So good. And really the basics of covenant theology we're talking about here, aren't we? You know, I think on both fronts, you know, the covenant of works in the New Testament, as we've looked at it today, and um, and the covenant of grace. I mean, we're, we're not talking about the heady stuff. It's just this is this is the, you know, this is the bread and butter of it all. And and Amen. what I like about that is it's just, there it is. It's just so, it's, it's so, you know, pronounced, you know, it's not, it's not some hidden away idea that, you know, oh, look. See, he said um, John looked upwards, and therefore the rapture happened. You know, it's it's, <laughs> it's something that's just woven into the fabric of Amen. it all. I think, and, and, and once you see it, you'll see it everywhere. Oh my goodness, yeah. And it's just, and you know, and you you don't. Again, it's not that you're trying to, you know, create this uh, system. It's just that it oozes out of every possible 
um, uh, you know, opportunity, uh, that any story, any genealogy we've mentioned, you know, it's it's just there. So it's exciting. It's exciting for people that that um, are working through this, trying to get to the nuts and bolts of you know where they need to look, and um, and yeah, just just begin that journey of, of reading the scriptures and really feeling the application of it at every point. Your Bible gets big all of a sudden. Amen. You know, you're not you're not stuck on on a little bit here and there. It's it's just every single part of the Bible is about every this. obscure fact feeds into a single a unified narrative. I, I, yeah, I remember that was actually so helpful for me because I remember you know as a you know as a new believer, obviously coming with all the zeal, you want to believe this is the Bible, this is the Word of God, but you're getting caught up on a lot of the stuff. It's just like, oh, yeah. what does that mean? And what is that? It's just so overwhelming, you know. And then you there is a little part of you that goes, okay, well maybe a lot of maybe maybe it is just a bunch of random stuff in the that's just got caught up in this whole traditional thing. Um, but I, once you start seeing this, I think it, for me, it was a real kind of lifesaver in that sense, in that I started to see, oh, 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 you know, like this is actually, it has to be there. If this wasn't there at that particular yeah. point, none of this would work. And so every single part that's included in the Bible, even those really random stories, all of a sudden become like pivotal. Yeah, and even Ishmael's genealogy, you know, oh, especially, you know, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it's just <laughs> and oh, Esau's genealogy. It's just yeah. crazy. Even uh, yeah, the weird stories of uh, you know of of like incest in caves and all that becomes yeah, like man. you know absolutely part and of the, the holy whole thing. wars, the battles between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, and God's people being persecuted and crushed, and you know, it looks like God's losing. Where's God in in, in the theodicy stuff? It's it's, yeah. it's all well, you know, makes sense, and even just like the good stories that everyone no one really has a problem with but they're just kind of like you know at the end you can see all the commentators just kind of going oh well god's not mentioned anywhere so who knows where the david and goliath yeah or or, or, uh, or you know i'm thinking of esther and, uh, yeah esther and and just uh the yeah, whole the whole book know, of esther yeah you've just like everyone and then they typically try and draw some moral from it you know whatever yeah. but the whole thing is about protecting the seed right the, yeah. there was the seed of the serpent trying to wipe the seed of the woman out in, in the entire kingdom so all of a sudden this book is not about some little moral it's fundamentally about showing you how god fulfilled genesis three fifteen. you know how yeah. he's he's preserving this this picture until all this people to bring forth christ so i mean those are just some obvious sort of big examples but everything if you start with that question you're, you're you're in a good place to to find what's happening there in that text um you know how is this how does this relate to genesis 315 yeah. in the seed amen and cool. i think anytime anyone is saved in the old testament you know we we, we recognize that people are saved by grace through faith in christ mm. it's christ in promise as the seed as the expected one as the promised deliverer as the you know um every every generation was living in expectation of mm. you know getting out from under the effects of sin and the fall and, and disease and death and everything else. Mm. And the, the oral tradition would have been passed down even before um, Moses came along and, and their hope would have been directed to this promise mm. and God's, God's provision of salvation of the one in this promise. Yeah. And so that's how people were saved in the old Testament. Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. And this is what he was, this is what he was drawn to. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's another big question, isn't it? Just, you know, that's the that's kind of the one that's one of the main questions I think that you start it starts shifting you in to trying to find out how this all works. In that you just um, I was speaking to someone on Sunday about this actually, where they were just going, wait a minute, so you know this this whole 
Christianity thing and this whole Jesus that I love thing and you know how does that work before Jesus and this is such a basic question but but actually yeah. to answer that you need everything we've said this evening <laughs> so I mean just think about Adam naming his wife Eve mother of the living why did he name her that yeah it's because of this promise man totally. this promise reoriented his whole life it reoriented it reorients everything yeah it was his, you know? uh, and then Seth is he the one yeah you know and who's, God who's going to be the one God has given me another man you know <laughs> it's just there's just so much yeah, yeah it's crazy awesome um so let's leave some space for uh some some oh cool i'm just seeing the noe covenant uh is coming next so we'll circle back right. we did say something about that a few weeks ago or a few months ago my little time blur thing happening there but um uh, this is the one by uh miles van pelt that i like and um and so we'll, we'll look at that in a bit more detail next time um but that's good hopefully that gives us everyone something to think about until we get there thanks nick appreciate it take it easy man cheers Thank you.